Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Welcome to our two-part episode about the time the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency orchestrated a coup to overthrow the democratically elected president of Guatemala. In part one, we gave an overview of U.S. policy as it related to Central America, especially uh, in particular, we talked about how it evolved in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We also talked about United Fruit Company and how it came to be a major player in Guatemala and elsewhere. And then we took a very brief look at Guatemala's history up to the presidency of Juan Jose Arevalo, who made just sweeping reforms in Guatemala after being elected president after the October Revolution. That was a lot to cover. I strongly recommend listening to part one before listening to this episode because that recap is just the tip of the iceberg for an episode that also is a tip, a slightly larger tip of the iceberg. Uh, At this point, United Fruit Company was Guatemala's largest employer and its largest single landowner, and it had a monopoly on the banana industry. United Fruit Company also controlled the railroad and the port and the utilities, And United Fruit Company thought all of these changes that the Arevalo administration had made were threatening its business. And as we'll talk about today, the CIA increasingly thought they were evidence of a communist threat that needed to be dealt with. As we mentioned in part one, Juan Jose Arevalo's administration started to struggle in its later years. He faced increasing criticism, especially from Guatemala's elite, and he weathered multiple coup attempts. One of his most vocal critics increasingly became Colonel Francisco Arana. Arana had served in the military during the Ubico administration and had been part of the coup that overthrew his interim successor, General Federico Ponce. He had also been part of the military junta that had temporarily run Guatemala during part of the October Revolution. From there, he had become Arevalo's chief of the armed forces. But Arana increasingly disagreed with a lot of Arevalo's labor reforms. He finally resigned his position so that he could run for president once Arevalo's term was up, and he also threatens to launch a coup, telling the president that he would be overthrown from office if he did not dismiss his whole cabinet and replace them with men of Arana's choosing. After he did this, Arevalo informed his advisors of this plot, and they all agreed that Arana should be exiled. What happened next is actually not entirely clear, but on July 18, 1949, Arana was ambushed and killed. Arevalo had given the order that he be apprehended, and Arana's key rival for the presidency, Colonel Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, also knew about the order. But it is not clear whether Arevalo ordered Arana captured or killed, who fired the first shot when it happened, or exactly what Arbenz knew about what was going on. Regardless, though, this was an incredibly fragile moment for Guatemala's new democracy. An uprising spread through Guatemala City, which involved Arana's military supporters. About 150 people were killed and 200 were wounded before the government regained control. The United States also became a lot more wary of Guatemala's government and of Jacobo Arbenz. So did United Fruit Company, and the following May, United Fruit Company lobbyist Thomas Corcoran held his first meeting to discuss a U.S. overthrow of the Arevalo presidency. Corcoran later became United Fruit Company's liaison to the CIA. 
On November 11, 1950, Jacobo Arbenz was elected president of Guatemala. He got 65% of the vote. He took office in 1951, and he started trying to build on Arevalo's earlier work and to solidify the changes that had already been made. His administration also started trying to get out from under United Fruit Company's multiple monopolies by building a new port and a new highway to it and a new electric plant. Yeah, so even though there had been uh, all of this questionable, like, possible assassination previously, like, the the fact that there was supposed to be a democratic election and that it did happen and there was a, a peaceful transition of power was, like, still a really important moment in Guatemalan history. Arbenz also started trying to make the land reform that Arevalo had started go even further. Many of Arevalo's new policies and programs had mostly affected the Guatemalan middle class. They had not as much affected the lives of the country's poorest agricultural workers. Arbenz thought the key to improving these people's circumstances was a land redistribution program, which would put more of the country's uncultivated land directly into the hands of people who could farm it themselves. At this point, 70% of the land in Guatemala was controlled by 2% of the population. Of all the land that was being controlled by major landowners, only one quarter of it was actually being used to grow anything. United Fruit Company was the largest single landowner in Guatemala, controlling 40% of the arable land, but only cultivating 10 to 15% of it. On top of that, in retaliation for the changes in the Guatemalan government, United Fruit Company had started laying off workers and refusing to rebuild banana plantations that had been damaged in storms unless the government restored its earlier concessions. In addition to being Guatemala's single largest landowner, it was also Guatemala's largest single employer. Two-thirds of Guatemala's population was involved in agriculture in some way as well. So this whole pattern of land ownership where huge landowners were owning a lot of land but not growing anything on it was contributing to all kinds of problems, including poverty and malnutrition. United Fruit Company and others claimed that they needed this additional uncultivated land as basically a backup in case of a major crop failure, but their critics claimed that this uncultivated surplus was way more than they could possibly ever need. Arbenz's plan to fix this was Decree 900, which went into effect on June 27, 1952. Landowners who had more than 600 acres of uncultivated land were required to sell it to the Guatemalan government in exchange for 25-year interest-bearing bonds. The tax value of the land as of May 1952 was used to determine the selling price. So smaller farms under 223 acres were exempt from this. And so were farms that were between 223 and 670 acres that were at least two-thirds cultivated. Farms that were fully cultivated were also unaffected no matter how large the farm was. The terms of this law actually required Arbenz to relinquish some of his own land, and someone else affected was Guillermo Torreo, who became Arbenz's foreign minister. Government-owned land used to grow coffee was also completely redistributed during this program as well. The relinquished land would then be distributed to landless people in 42.5-acre plots, either so they would own it outright or so that they would hold it for their lifetime. In the latter case, the land couldn't pass directly to their heirs, but their descendants would get preferential treatment when decisions were made about the land after their death. 
People who owned the land outright would pay 5% of their annual crop value to the government, and people who held it in a lifetime tenure would pay 3%. This law also established committees that people who thought they were entitled to land could petition, and the committee would review their case and make a decision. Every case had to be decided within six weeks of submission, which was totally different from operating under the more dictatorial government where you could ask for something and then it would just never happen or be addressed. A subsequent law also established a national agrarian bank to issue fixed-rate loans to land recipients to help them get their farms started. While this program was in effect, 1.5 million acres of land were distributed to about 100,000 families in Guatemala. This was probably between 20 and 25% of the people who were eligible. The National Agrarian Bank and its newly established credit agency had approved more than $11 million in loans, an average of $225 per applicant. In the fall of 1953, the Guatemalan Embassy reported that its corn production had increased by 15%, rice by 72%, and wheat by 21%, with much of the increase attributed to the small farms started thanks to Decree 900. It's harder to track, actually, how this affected overall domestic crops and export crops because this this did not last very long. This program didn't. So it does seem like that like there were more crops that stayed in the country domestically and fewer crops that were exported for that first year, but some of that was also accounted for because of weather that affected coffee production. Like, it's really complicated. But overall, it does seem like People were using this land for what it was supposed to be for, which was growing crops for themselves. In addition, more than half of Guatemala's population was indigenous at this point, with most but not all of them belonging to one of more than 20 different Maya groups. Indigenous people made up the large majority of landless rural people. So this program was returning land to Guatemala's native people for the first time since the Spanish conquest. As was the case with earlier new programs, this wasn't perfect. There were cases of people who wanted more land than they were allotted, or who had not been allotted land, commandeering land they weren't entitled to. There were also overzealous committees that seemed to want to settle the score after decades of being exploited by large landowners, who allotted more land than was really allowed. And it does appear that Guatemala's Ladino population received disproportionately more land allotments than other ethnic groups. Overall, though, this system gave previously landless people the opportunity to try to become self-sufficient farmers. And in 1954, the Guatemalan government also rolled out a literacy program in these same rural areas, hoping to help the people who had received this land become better able to manage it themselves long-term. Two-thirds of the land that was seized during all this belonged to United Fruit Company, which felt like it was being unfairly targeted by Decree 900. On top of that, the payment that was offered to United Fruit was far less than the market value of the land. Sources reported it as either $630,000 or about a million dollars. This was because the company had been artificially undervaluing its land for tax purposes, and reported tax value was what was being used to determine the payment. Nevertheless, the U.S. government, on behalf of United Fruit Company, demanded a much higher payment of $15.9 million. Yeah, so basically, United Fruit Company was mad about a problem they made for themselves in this situation. (laughs) Yeah, they finally, like, their loophole finally got discovered and 
caught and exploited by someone else. Not even exploited, but like applied in another way. (laughs) And And then it hurt. Yes. So, as had been the case with so many of the Arevalo administration's reforms, the United States and United Fruit Company criticized this whole land distribution program as communism. And to be clear, this policy was influenced by Guatemala's Communist Party, which was called the Guatemalan Workers' Party, or PGT, which lines up with how that translates into Spanish. One of the advisors who had helped draft Decree 900 was Jose Manuel Fortuny, who was Arbenz's friend and also the PGT general secretary. Decree 900 had also been passed with the support of the Communist Party, which Arbenz had legalized after becoming president. Arbenz maintained that the communist presence in the Guatemalan government was small and that he himself was dedicated to capitalism and democracy. One of the stated goals of Decree 900 was to allow previously landless people to become part of the capitalist economy and to improve Guatemala's capitalist economy overall. And it doesn't appear that the PGT had connections to the Soviet Union. Communism in Latin America at this point was more focused on upending dictatorships and getting out from under foreign capitalist interests, not on becoming Soviet allies. Yeah, the United States didn't really care about this nuance regarding being a Soviet ally versus being influenced by communism, though. And then also complicating U.S. perceptions of this law, in February of 1953, the Guatemalan Supreme Court found one of the law's provisions unconstitutional. The law outlined a dispute resolution process that ended with the president of the republic instead of with the courts. So when the Supreme Court ordered that the land redistribution stop until lower courts could hear the cases of land that had been allegedly expropriated illegally, Congress impeached the judges that had made that ruling, and then their replacements reversed the decision. Admittedly, this was squirrely. Critics in the United States pointed to it as evidence that Arbenz's administration was really a totalitarian regime. Regardless, in the midst of all of this, United Fruit Company had started advocating for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency to overthrow the Arbenz government and replace it with an administration that would be more sensitive to American influence and United Fruit Company's business. We'll get to this whole CIA situation after a sponsor break. Like we said back before the break, a huge motivator for the CIA's coup in Guatemala was the idea that Guatemala was about to fall under a very sinister communist influence. And a huge source of that idea was publicist and propagandist Edward Bernays. Folks have asked us to do uh, an episode on him. We might at some point. (laughs) When folks first started asking, uh, one of our one of our other shows on our network had just done a three-parter, and that seemed a little excessive to have, like, that much on the same network, but that was years ago now. His relationship with United Fruit Company went back to about 1940, and at first he had been focused on trying to improve the company's image in the Latin American countries where it was operating. Because outside of the wealthy elite that were benefiting the most from United Fruit Company's presence, people understandably did not have a very good opinion of it and called it a variety of disparaging nicknames, including the octopus. Bernays really wasn't all that successful at shifting ordinary people's opinions of United Fruit Company in Central America. But he was masterful at selling the idea that Guatemala was under an immediate communist threat to the United States. 
For example, he brought journalists to Guatemala to conduct interviews with a hand-picked selection of United Fruit Company officials, who talked all about how the country was about to collapse under communism. He had arranged a whole press junket in 1951 with all of the interviews arranged through the United Fruit Company. Yeah, they did none of the people he arranged to come in talk to anyone else. They got all their opinions from United Fruit. The CIA's first attempt to overthrow the Guatemalan government took place in 1952 under the administration of President Harry Truman, whose Truman Doctrine you might remember from Part 1. It was known as Operation Fortune, or Operation PB Fortune, because of the little prefix that goes in the beginnings of CIA codenames. This plan involved collaborating with Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza to arm a rebellion led by disgruntled General Carlos Castillo Armas, Castillo Armas had tried to lead a rebellion back in 1950, and after escaping from prison afterward, he had become something of a folk hero. The CIA wound up abandoning this uh, operation after word of it became public. Dwight D. Eisenhower was inaugurated as President of the United States on January 20th, 1953. And the next day, he appointed John Foster Dulles Secretary of State. If you don't remember that name from part one, he was one of the people who helped United Fruit Company negotiate multiple monopolies and other concessions in Guatemala during the 1930s while working for the company's law firm, Sullivan & Cromwell. This was one of many connections between United Fruit Company and high-placed figures in the U.S. government. Dulles's brother, Alan Dulles, was the director of the CIA between 1953 and 1961, and he had previously served on United Fruit's board of directors. During the years that we're talking about today, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. was a senator from Massachusetts and then an ambassador to the United Nations. The Lodge family was a major investor in United Fruit Company, and he was nicknamed the senator from United Fruit. These are just examples, so sometimes you'll see this whole thing framed as United Fruit Company got the CIA to overthrow the Guatemalan government. But really, the United States was operating under the idea that if one nation in a region became communist, all of its neighbors would follow, something Eisenhower described in terms of Southeast Asia in his domino theory speech the same year as the coup in Guatemala. So without the supposed threat of communism, the CIA might not have gotten involved in Guatemala. And with the supposed threat of communism, the CIA probably would have gotten involved even if United Fruit Company had not been part of the equation. It is totally fair to note that a lot of the paranoia about communism in Guatemala was coming from public relations operations paid for by United Fruit, though. Yeah, uh, Jose Manuel Fortuny later said they would have overthrown us even if we had grown no bananas, which I think is accurate. So the CIA operation to orchestrate a coup in Guatemala was authorized in August of 1953. It was codenamed Operation Success or Operation PB Success, and it was led by Colonel Albert Haney. This time, the idea was to create what looked like an uprising from within Guatemala, but with the uprising really being organized and directed by the CIA with a fighting force that the CIA recruited and trained, mostly from Guatemalans living in exile in Nicaragua. The CIA established a dummy company to supply weapons to this supposed liberation army. A dummy charitable foundation was also established to donate aircraft for a liberation air force, also organized by the CIA and flown by American pilots. 
An anti-government radio station called The Voice of Liberation started broadcasting propaganda and disinformation, reinforcing the idea that there was a huge popular uprising in the works from inside of Guatemala. This is basically psychological warfare. The Voice of Liberation broadcast claimed to be transmitting from a secret location in Guatemala, but the only time it was actually doing that, it was broadcasting from inside the U.S. Embassy. Most of the time, the signals were really coming from Nicaragua and occasionally from Dominican Republic or from Honduras. Several of these other governments were also opposed to the Arbenz administration, both because of the reforms that he was rolling out, which sort of threatened the elite elsewhere, and also because he welcomed exiled revolutionaries from these other countries into Guatemala. The CIA once again chose Carlos Castillo Armas as the leader of this uprising. They sneaked him into Florida to meet with CIA Western Hemisphere Chief J.C. King, where they went over the plan and what they expected in return. Basically, that Castillo Armas return all of the land that United Fruit Company had surrendered and roll back other policies from the Arbenz and Arevalo administrations. In January of 1954, a Panamanian courier informed Arbenz of this plot, including handing over a bunch of Liberation Army documents. On January 29th, Guatemalan newspapers started publishing a lot of this material, and at this point, the United States denied all involvement and called the reports ridiculous and untrue. But in reality, the United States was just waiting for a clear reason to start their invasion. That whole progression of foreign policy that we talked about in part one had led up to the idea that members of the Organization of American States could interfere in another's affairs if it was under the threat of, quote, communism or any totalitarian doctrine. To cover its bases, the U.S. needed evidence of that threat. Meanwhile, the 10th Inter-American Conference was held in Caracas, Venezuela in March of 1954. On March 28th, the conference adopted the Caracas Declaration of Solidarity, which condemned, quote, activities of the international communist movement as constituting intervention in American affairs. It also declared, quote, that the domination or control of the political institutions of any American state by the international communist movement extending to this hemisphere, the political system of an extracontinental power, would constitute a threat to the sovereignty and political independence of the American states, endangering the peace of America, and would call for a meeting of consultation to consider the adoption of appropriate action in accordance with existing treaties. This declaration was intended to single out Guatemala, but without naming Guatemala. And of the nations in attendance, Guatemala was the only one to vote against it. To the U.S., this confirmed that communists had taken control of Guatemala, but it still wasn't evidence of an actual threat. Then, on May 15, 1954, a shipment of arms arrived in Guatemala, including rifles, ammunition, artillery, and anti-tank weaponry, They had been purchased from Czechoslovakia, which was a communist country and part of the Soviet bloc. Guatemala had previously tried to buy arms from the United States, which had refused under the grounds that Guatemala had not signed the Rio Security Pact of 1947. From there, Guatemala had tried to buy weapons from several other countries as well. All of them had refused, some of which under heavy pressure from the United States to do so, There were figures in Guatemala who felt like the U.S. didn't pressure Czechoslovakia into saying no because they were hoping for this kind of evidence. Basically, though, Guatemala had gone to Czechoslovakia as a last resort. 
U.S. intelligence had learned about the potential deal in 1953, but allowed it to go forward, hoping to intercept the shipment en route and use it as evidence of Soviet collusion. Part of that plan involved using the shipment as evidence that Arbenz was arming a militia to fight against the Guatemalan army. Arbenz maintained that he was just resupplying the Guatemalan army, but the United States cited this as proof that the Soviet Union was propping up a communist regime. The U.S. did not successfully intercept this shipment on the way as they had hoped it. Basically, they lost track of it. But also, these weapons weren't that useful once they arrived in Guatemala. A lot of the rifles didn't work. There were not any tanks in Central America for these anti-tank weapons to be used against. The artillery pieces needed an extensive network of improved roads to really be useful, and Guatemala didn't really have that at this point. None of that really mattered. The fact that it had come from Czechoslovakia was the evidence that the United States wanted to justify this coup. And we're going to talk about how all of this finally played out after we pause for another sponsor break. The United States stepped up this operation on May 17th with Eisenhower blockading Guatemala and the Liberation Army organizing from Honduras. They used as one of their base of operations a United Fruit Company company town. Flyovers started on May 26th with planes dropping leaflets warning the Guatemalan public of these supposed secret plans and encouraging the Guatemalan military to turn on the president. The Voice of Liberation broadcast false reports about an increasingly large army of rebels that was taking on new recruits as it moved. Arbenz demanded that Honduras put a stop to the Liberation Army's organization within its borders, and the United States started using the pretext of sending military aid to Honduras and Mexico to funnel weapons toward this manufactured uprising. By early June, the CIA's ongoing efforts to destabilize the Guatemalan government had led to increasing unrest, including plots against the government from within. On June 3rd, military officers tried to convince Arbenz that, for the good of the country, he should purge all communists from his administration. But he refused. Five days later, Arbenz suspended civil liberties, citing the national emergency. Throughout all of this, government officials and the media in the United States were warning of an insidious communist threat in Guatemala, with John Foster Dulles calling the Guatemalan government a, quote, communist-type reign of terror. The actual invasion began on June 18, 1954. After all the ongoing propaganda efforts, the CIA was expecting the Guatemalan people to rise up and side with the invasion, but that didn't really happen. The Liberation Army faced repeated defeats. Three additional aircraft were deployed to provide more air support, but two of them were shot down. Arbenz placed the army and the police on alert, but he didn't actually deploy them. He was afraid that if he did, it would just look like the U.S. propaganda was right about what was happening in Guatemala. Foreign Minister Guillermo Torreo recommended that Guatemala go through formal channels to address this. He met with John Purifoy, who was the U.S. ambassador to Guatemala, who, of course, knew exactly what was going on. He also contacted the UN Security Council and the Inter-American Peace Committee of the Organization of American States for support. Torrejo denounced the accusations that Guatemala had become a communist country and asked for a ceasefire and for Honduran and Nicaraguan forces to be removed from Guatemala. 
On the 19th, the U.S. planes flying over Guatemala progressed from dropping leaflets to also strafing and dropping bombs on Guatemalan buildings, including gas and oil storage depots. Guatemala didn't have much of an air force that could respond. All of its planes had been built before 1936, and Arbenz ultimately grounded them out of concerns over whether the pilots were still loyal to him. On that night of the 19th, Arbenz gave a radio address calling what was happening an armed invasion. In it, he said, quote, Our only crime consisted of decreeing our own laws and applying them to all without exception. Our crime is having enacted an agrarian reform which affected the interests of the United Fruit Company. Our crime is wanting to have our own route to the Atlantic, our own electric power, and our own docks and ports. Our crime is our patriotic wish to advance, to progress, to win economic independence, to match our political independence. We are condemned because we have given our peasant population land and rights. The air attacks continued, and Arbenz declared martial law on June 20th. Guatemala continued appealing to the United Nations for aid, where Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge, whose family owned stock in United Fruit, was head of the Security Council. After a lengthy debate, the UN Security Council determined that this was a matter for the Organization of American States, which, as we noted earlier, was heavily influenced by the United States. The Soviet Union voted against this, correctly concluding that the U.S. was involved in what was happening in Guatemala. After days of bombings and attacks and ongoing propaganda, both within and outside of Guatemala, the United States started publicly supporting Castillo Armas and the Liberation Army. The Voice of Liberation started broadcasting reports of all kinds of successful attacks by the Liberation Army, which weren't actually happening. It also reported that Castillo Armas's force was growing at an astounding rate, even though he was in command of about 400 people at the most, the international news media also picked up these stories and reported them as fact. In the midst of all of this, an American plane bombed a British freighter at the request of Nicaragua, which claimed it was carrying gasoline to refuel Arbenz's military. It turned out to be carrying only bananas and cotton, and the CIA paid off its insurer. As it became clear that the United States was backing Castillo Armas and the Liberation Army, a wave of anti-American sentiment started to grow within and outside of Guatemala, including in numerous nations in Central and South America and the Caribbean. Argentinian revolutionary Che Guevara had traveled to Guatemala to see the ongoing reforms that were going on there, and he was actually there when this coup took place. His first wife, Hilda Gaia, later said, quote, it was Guatemala which finally convinced him of the necessity for armed struggle and for taking the initiative against imperialism. By June 25th, Arbenz was losing the support of the Guatemalan military. He recognized that there was no way he could go up against the United States directly. He resigned on June 27th. In his radio address announcing this, Arbenz pointed out the roles of the United States and the United Fruit Company in all of this, saying, quote, I took over the presidency with great faith in the democratic system, in liberty and in the possibility of achieving economic independence for Guatemala. I continue to believe that this program is just. I have not violated my faith in democratic liberties and the independence of Guatemala and in all the good, which is the future of humanity. One day, the obscured forces, which today oppress the backward and colonial world, will be defeated. I will continue to be, despite everything, a fighter for the liberty and progress of my country. 
He took refuge in the Mexican embassy. From there, he was offered refuge in Czechoslovakia, and then he traveled to several other countries before returning to Mexico and dying there in 1971. Arbenz's speech was a totally different tone from the one that was delivered by U.S. Secretary of State Dulles on June 30th of 1954. And that speech said in part, quote, they exposed the evil purpose of the Kremlin to destroy the inter-American system, and they test the ability of the American states to maintain the peaceful integrity of this hemisphere. For several years now, international communism has been probing here and there for nesting places in the Americas. It finally chose Guatemala as a spot which it could turn into an official base from which to breed subversion, which would extend to the other American republics. This intrusion of Soviet despotism was, of course, a direct challenge to the Monroe Doctrine, the first and most fundamental of our foreign policies. Later in the same speech, Dulles said, quote, It was not the power of the Arbenz government that concerned us, but the power behind it. If world communism captured any American state, however small, a new and perilous front it established, which will increase the dangers of the entire free world and require even greater sacrifices from the American people. There has continued to be debate about exactly what role communism played in the Arbenz administration. At the time, the Guatemalan Workers' Party was the nation's smallest political party, and the number of communist party members in the Guatemalan government was also small. For example, of the 56 members of Congress, four of them were communist. At the same time, several of those positions were particularly influential, including the president's personal secretary and the president of Congress. There were also members of the party in prominent positions outside of the government, including some of Guatemala's largest labor unions. Regardless, though, what was happening in Guatemala doesn't really align with the propaganda that became part of the justification for this intervention. When he stepped down, Arbenz handed over power to Colonel Carlos Enrique Diaz, who was chief of the Guatemalan Armed Forces of the Republic, Diaz became part of a three-man ruling junta, with Diaz announcing that he was committed to continuing his predecessor's work. So the CIA started trying to figure out how to remove him from power as well. Ultimately, disputes arose among this junta, which was then replaced with a whole different three-man team. It was a very chaotic few days This team traveled to El Salvador to negotiate a peace with Castillo Armas, who ultimately became the next president of Guatemala. Castillo Armas denounced communism and promised that he would not roll back the social gains of the previous administration. Then on October 10, 1954, he was elected president while running unopposed. Once he was in power, he repealed the 1945 Constitution. He abolished the previous administration's land reforms, returning all the expropriated land back to the United Fruit Company and other landowners. He rolled back the earlier expansions of voting rights, and he restored the Catholic Church's right to own property and teach religion in public schools. Castillo Armas also outlawed labor organizations and political parties and restored Jorge Obico's chief of secret police to his former position. Seven prominent labor organizers were also murdered on July 1st. At the United States' request, Castillo Armas also established a National Committee of Defense Against Communism in Guatemala. In 1958, Castillo Armas was assassinated by one of his own bodyguards. His successor was General Miguel Idiros Fuentes. A rebellion to overthrow his dictatorial regime in 1960 was the start of the Guatemalan Civil War, which lasted for 36 years. 
In spite of the ongoing civil rights abuses of the Fuentes regime and his predecessor, Castillo Armas's, and the abuses of the Guatemalan military, the United States backed the military throughout this civil war through varying degrees through the various presidential administrations that were in power during the 36 years that it went on. This all circles back to the idea of it being acceptable to intervene in another American nation's affairs if there's a threat within or without of communist or authoritarian influence. The United States made it a policy for decades to back these kinds of dictatorial regimes regardless of their human or civil rights record as long as those regimes were anti-communist. More than 200,000 people were killed during the Guatemalan Civil War, and that is in a country with a population of only about 10 million at the end of the war. According to a 1999 United Nations Historical Clarification Commission, 83% of those killed were indigenous Maya, killed at the hands of the Guatemalan military or militia, which were being supported, supplied, and trained by the United States. Even though the war officially ended in 1996, violence and instability continue to be issues in Guatemala today. President Bill Clinton was in Guatemala not long after this Historical Clarification Commission report was published and said, quote, it is important that I state clearly that support for military forces or intelligence units which engaged in violent and widespread repression of the kind described in the report was wrong. And the United States must not repeat that mistake. We must and we will instead continue to support the peace and reconciliation process in Guatemala Guatemalan President Alvaro Colom offered his own statement in 2011, saying, quote, that day changed Guatemala, and we have not recuperated from it yet. It was a crime to Guatemalan society, and it was an act of aggression to a government starting its democratic spring. The ongoing economic, social, and political issues affecting Guatemala today are a direct result of all of this. And like we've said at various points in this show, this kind of U.S. intervention was not unique to Guatemala, especially during the Cold War, when the U.S. made numerous other interventions in other Latin American countries as well, including providing weapons, training, and other support to dictatorial regimes. Uh, And what was unique, though, to Guatemala was the direction, scope, and overall success of all these reforms before the U.S. intervened. In other words, the migrant crisis that is currently happening at the United States' southern border is directly connected to decades of U.S. interventions in Latin America, including this one. Also, United Fruit Company went through an antitrust suit and ultimately sold its land in Guatemala to Del Monte. After a couple of corporate transitions, United Fruit Company is now Chiquita Brands International. The company's history page traces its roots back to United Fruit Company, but the timeline of its history on the company's website skips the 1950s entirely. Yeah, uh, a few years ago, there was a Stuff You Should Know live show that was about uh, the history of, not the history, it was about how public relations work, I think is what they called it, and I saw that live show here, and when uh, they mentioned Chiquita, some people cheered. <laughs> Josh Clark was like, you're going to want to take that back. If you don't know any of this history, everybody loves the banana. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, everybody loves the little cartoon banana lady. I understand that impulse, but yeah. it, it it is made without the full picture. Absolutely, yeah. Because the next thing that they talked about was this whole overthrow of the Guatemalan government at the hands of the United States Central Intelligence Agency, not necessarily influenced, but definitely strongly advocated for by United Fruit Company, whose policies were the start of the land reforms that got everybody's attention in the first place. Anyway. 
That's a uh, not the most fun episode, though it is important information, but I'm hoping mm-hmm. you have maybe slightly more delightful listener mail. Uh, I have listener mail that is from Lauren. It does not hark back to a more fun episode, but its content is uh, is interesting and, and cool. So Lauren writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I just wanted to write and say thank you for your awesome podcast. I love the quality and variety of your shows and your excellent presentation style, and I've recommended you to a lot of my friends. I was really interested in your recent thalidomide shows. I'm a medical historian and was previously a curator of a medical museum where I cared for a large collection of disability prosthetics. We were working with Leicester University to discuss how we could better work with the disabled community to represent their stories, not just approach the collection from a medical model of disability. As part of our project, we hosted a performance of Cabinet of Curiosities, How Disability Was Kept in a Box, which was developed by the wonderful artist and actor Matt Fraser, who has thalidomide-induced phocomelia. Matt worked with medical museums in the UK to explore the disability histories, which he brought out in the performance. There's a performance available on the Museum Association website. Lauren gives us a link. And it's well worth a watch. It is such a wonderful piece. But the one part which struck me was the video Matt shared of a child who was put in a pair of gas-powered prosthetic legs and arms. It's at about 53 minutes in the performance. And the vulnerability of placing this young person in such a device. It really caused me to question how I interpreted such prosthetic devices for audiences in the museum. Obviously, there are people who thrive and rely on prosthetics. However, the medical model of disability attempting to fix people can also create create new problems, as you state, of course, in your show, which is great to hear. I just thought you guys might find the show interesting. Thank you both again for such a great podcast. I'll be continuing to listen and welcoming any future medical shows in the future with very best wishes, Lauren. Thank you so much for this email, Lauren. I have not had the chance to watch this whole video yet, but we are going to put it into the show notes for folks who may be interested to be able to check it out. Thank you so much for sending it and for sending this email. I love to hear from museum curators and other people who, whose work involves uh, similarly to what we do, attempting to put historical things into context for the general public. Yes. I also uh, love Matt Frazier. I was introduced to him. He was on um, the season of American Horror Story that was called Freak Show, and he was amazing oh, on yeah. it. And then I was like, I want to see everything he does because he's such a good actor. Um, so I'm glad that he's getting a little more love. I well, watched that season of American Horror Story, and I did not connect the person and the name. Mm-hmm. Um, even having started to watch the video, I didn't put it all together. Uh, so thank you, Lauren. Uh, in spite of the various op-eds that seem to be written, like every couple or three weeks that start floating around Twitter, historians are doing a lot of work engaging with the public, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Historians and museum curators and archivists and all kinds of folks. Uh, If you're thinking about writing an op-ed about how historians aren't engaging with the public, maybe, like, Google that. Right. Read read the things that people have already said about it. And then the many responses about how that's not actually all that accurate. I think some of that, too, is that people have one idea of what a historian is in their head. Uh And they think if that person isn't somehow in the public eye that historians aren't out there doing the work. Yeah. Uh, we have an upcoming interview that I'm hoping will help dispel some of this. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm very happy about that. Yeah. Holly's in my work is deeply reliant on the work of historians who are putting things out for the public all the time. Yes. So, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. 
We're also all over social media at Missed in History. We will find us there at Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com. The show notes for this episode will include the link that we just talked about, as well as all of the sources for this episode, which include CIA declassified documents acknowledging all this stuff. We did not make it up. Uh, you can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.